Hello and welcome back to the Drop In and Surf Show. My name is Rob Case. I'm a paddling technique coach located in Northern California. For those of you that listen to the show, my deepest apologies. It's been a f- two months since we did the last show. Uh, a lot's been happening. A lot of good things. We took uh, three different coaching trips, well, two coaching trips and one recon mission um, to find a new location to take surfers to and, and coach uh, for paddling. And then I bring a, a surf coach along and they, they work on the surf technique side of it. But it's been a good month. My apologies for the delay. For those of you that are new to the show, this is a show that links surfing with math and science as best we can. And today I got a doozy for you, people. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, A client of mine recently contacted me after going through level two and he said, hey, you know what? I'm starting to feel different sorenesses in my back. And it reminded me of this study that was published in uh, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research by our friends down at Cal State San Marcos. Uh, Dr. Jeff Nessler and Dr. Sean Newcomer with several others, uh, Jesus Ponce Gonzalez, Cristina Robles Rodriguez, Heather Fur, and Mackenzie Warner, uh, did this fantastic analysis um, of the paddling stroke across different, they're saying across multiple intensities, which is basically different water velocities while in the swim flume. What they did was they put IMU or EMG sensors uh, all over different muscle groups to identify which muscles are activating at what point during the paddling stroke. And of course I nerd out on this. This is, this is like my Saturday morning reading, uh, which I love. And it had some really interesting results. Uh, had quite a bit of evidence that supports a lot of the things that I teach. Uh, in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. But it it could also be useful for trainers uh, and for you to develop a strength program on which muscle groups to be working and how long and at what intensities to be working them at. And so my client was like, oh yeah, my muscles, these are all new muscles that I've never worked before. It's like, okay, yeah, this, this uh, paper actually supports why you're feeling those new muscle groups when you sprint versus before in level one when you were using more of your efficiency stroke. And so what I'd like to do today is completely nerd out on you and go through the report and give you kind of a Cliff's Notes version of it, discuss how it can help you in your paddling technique, but also in your paddling training. And of course, as we all know, the better you get at your paddling, the more efficient you get at your paddling, the more energy you're going to have to catch waves and Uh, surf them better. So let's get into this. Uh, I'm going to, we're not going to read the whole thing because I'm not like a 1980s uh, college professor just reading their slides, but I do want to kind of give you the Notes version as we go through it. So there's a little, I hope I don't bore you to death as we go through this, um, but I will definitely try to pull in key takeaways in each section. Um, So it talks about a little bit of the results here. I'm going to skip over that because I want to get to that kind of as the big finale, like what, you know, what is this, what is this study really telling us um, that maybe we previously didn't know? 
Um, it starts out by uh, introducing different aspects um, and why paddling is so important. Um, always a good thing to start out with. That's what I always start out with. Um, these are, this is like music to my ears, right? All of these things that, you know, why is paddling so important uh, in surfing? Um, they, they also talk about how, you know, there's been chronic injuries among surfer, surfers in the low bank and the shoulder area. And so, you know, part of my level one course really dives into what are the motions and movements that are going to prevent injury versus uh, aggravate it. Um, so they're just talking about how it's important to have, um, proper paddling, physical conditioning, um, which is where everyone starts, but it's really technique that creates the movement and motion. And then if you add fitness and conditioning on top of that movement, it makes everything a lot easier. Um, so, uh, as many of you guys know, my philosophy is let's get the technique down first. That way, you know, if you're out of the water and you're not conditioning all the time, you can still go surf and have fun and not hurt yourself and, and be as efficient as you can. And then second, let's add the conditioning on top of that movement. And that makes everything a lot easier. So here they're talking about, you know, some past studies that have been done. What's wonderful about what Sean and Jeff are doing down at Cal State San Marcos and, and some other universities around the world, down in Australia and uh, over in Portugal, there's some studies being done on surfing now. We're still in surfing's research infancy. Um, swim research has been covered since the 60s, you know, and we have we have decades worth of data. And as more technology comes on board, we're able to get a little bit, a little bit more robust and detailed in that uh, information. And so a lot of what I've done is I've piggybacked on the back backs of many swim much swim research. What Sean and Jeff are doing and, and some of the other universities around the world, they're now taking some of that and, and now repeating or similarly structuring studies, but around paddling or around surfing. And so it's, it's a wonderful time to be in research, but it's still so much in its infancy that the evidence that comes out of all of these things is still pretty minimal. But through time, the more that universities and, and groups do these kinds of studies, the more evidence is going to be pointing towards one or the uh, one particular technique or, or, or result than another. So um, this is fantastic. We're going to actually see how they, they relate swim research to this um, in terms of the hypotheses that they're, they're coming out with. But in this section, they're, they're really just talking about um, the, the, the overall study that they're doing um, and how in the natural environment we go through these different paddling speeds. And so what they really wanted to do here um, is that, you know, all these other previous studies were performed at a single paddling speed. Um, and that's not reality. In reality, we're using different, like what I call gears. We're, we're, at, when you're first learning this, I teach like an efficiency gear and a power gear. But once you start to really dial in, okay, how do I make variation within those two gears? We end up with about six different gears, three in the efficiency gear and three in the power gear. And there are differences in technique. There's differences in intensities and magnitude of effort. 
um, and stroke rates when you're changing from gear to gear. But the, all they're saying here is that, hey, listen, when we're out paddling and we're out surfing, we're actually moving at different intensities. So what they wanted to do in this study was try to vary the speed uh, that that surfers go and see what muscle groups are being activated at what point during the stroke. I think that's awesome. You know, it's it's uh, I think it's set up a lot better than previous studies have been set up. Um, as we move through here, so so they actually uh, group it into what they call endurance paddling and sprint paddling. So endurance paddling would be like my efficiency paddling, and sprint paddling would be the burst strokes, the power strokes. Uh, now I teach something a little bit different in terms of how long you would be in each stroke for, um, just based off of of, of required required usage. Um, the way they structured it, their sprint you know, the, the surfer had been paddling for 10 to 15 minutes by the time they got to the sprint. Um, so that's not as likely to happen. Maybe here at Ocean Beach, you know, when you first, you know, you, you first get out and then all of a sudden there's a wave and then you sprint. Um, but in reality, that's, that's where, you know, and we talk about some of the limitations, they talk about some of the limitations at the end. And that was one that they actually mentioned. They, they mentioned that fatigue and uh, other issues may have been been affecting their quote-unquote sprint so the sprint really isn't a sprint they did mention here that there were some sprint studies that were were done at very short distances less than 10 seconds um 10 second trials and how fast they were moving and so this gave them a proxy to determine okay well how you know at what point are we defining this as a sprint uh at what point on the swim flume are we just you know deciding that this speed is a sprint speed well they decided around 1.6 meters per second is going to be considered sprint and above 1.6 and above because based on these studies in these earlier studies that were 15 meters you know five meters 10 meter uh, sprint bursts they were moving at about 1.6 1.7 1.77 meters per second 1.89 meters per second um in a different group so they they kind of use that um as as their benchmark for that um which is pretty fast you know that uh we're talking about two meters per second two meters per second is pretty close to olympic caliber speeds for the 50 meter and 100 meter you know olympians move faster than that um we should technically be faster than them because there's less drag when you're on a surfboard if you paddle it efficiently and effectively. But, you know, that's that's a pretty good clip rate, uh, two seconds, uh, two meters per second. And if you've already been paddling for 15 minutes and then you hit two meters per second, that's really fast given how long you've been paddling for at different intensities. So um, I w- still wouldn't call it a sprint. A sprint is something where... It's short bursts. Uh, these earlier studies over the very short durations is more like what we experience in the ocean. But I, I, I again, nonetheless, I like how they structured this study. The next section, uh, they're talking about just older studies and limitations in older studies. Um, they're talking about free freestyle um 
and front crawl studies and what they found um, uh, here, and then land-based ergometers, which they've, they've done uh, studies on, and just the differences. Like some of these old studies, just they, they don't they're not hitting the right muscle groups. Um, they're they're not in the same environment. They're not in water for the ergometer, and so you're you're actually engaging different muscle groups when you're in water, and there's there's instability that's happening. Then they go into the kind of the purposes of the study. So the primary purpose of this study was to characterize upper extremity muscle activation um, generated by surfers while paddling across different velocities of water. Meaning, let me let me re re say they just want to know what muscles are firing and when at different speeds, you know, at, at different velocities that you're you're paddling across. Um, What's kind of neat about this is that kind of they had secondary purposes as well. Um, their secondary purpose of uh, the study was to capture oxygen consumption, cadence, and, and surfboard motion at each different paddling speed velocity as well. Um, this is where they talk, they link it back to some older uh, freestyle swimming studies and hypothesized uh, the muscle activations. Um, and what they expect they would see, like how close to swimming would it come? Um, and so they just kind of talked about that, um, about the timing. And we found some, we found some pretty significant differences actually, which was really, really interesting. Um, I always talk about how swimming, yeah, it's a good proxy. It's not the same, but it's a pretty darn close proxy for paddling. The motions are different. Um, anatomically, biomechanically, uh, things are different. This is evidence towards that. But how much different? Not much uh, is uh, is what I'm going to say here in terms of some of the things. There, there's some, there are some differences, and, and we outline those, and this just provides further evidence toward that. Then we go into the methods of the experiment and the test. Um, they used EMG. Um, let me see if I can say this correctly, electromyographic uh, sensors, EMG uh, sensors uh, on different pieces, different areas of, of the, uh, the surfer. So we have kind of the mid trap that you can see here. If you're watching this on screen, um, the mid trap, you had a right, a right and a left sensor. You had the upper trap, left and right sensor. You had a middle uh, and was it middle and back? Hold on a sec. You had a mid deltoid and a posterior, posterior deltoid. And then finally you had the latissimus dorsi that you see down here, the sensors down there and there. Uh, they also did heart rate and then they hooked them up to the oxygen consumption, um, uh, device, uh, that they were measuring. And they also had an accelerometer on the nose of the board, um, to check for rolling or yawing. So, uh, it's pretty well set up in terms of, uh, all the different areas that they're trying to identify. They talk about some limitations, um, in terms of not here, but a little bit later on, but how we're still missing out on the pectoralis major and a couple of the other major muscle groups that we know are engaged during the paddling stroke. The reason they had to not use those or put EMG sensors on those areas is because they're, they're, they're partly underwater. They're not quite underwater. They are underwater. 
Uh, and so the sensors are a little bit less consistent when they're underwater, even when they're taped and covered like they did have them. But also some of the EMGs would be interacting with the board itself. And so they would be kind of knocked around. So there are some other things that we want to try to solve that in swimming they were able to 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 use those sensors because there's no board, for example, um, and uh, they they basically just outline, hey, these are some of the limitations. But again, I think they've done a, a fantastic job. Next section, they talk about the subjects that are being used. Um, 12 recreational surfers, nine male, three female, um, around the 30 year mark on average, uh, around the five, eight, five, nine range in height and then body mass. Um, so plus or minus uh, certain areas. Um, and age requirement, 18 to 45 years. Minimum five years of surfing experience. Um, currently surf at least three days per week. So that's a pretty good consistent surf for three days a week, five years surfing experience at least. Um, and they were excluded if they didn't meet those minimum criteria. So I thought that was a pretty good criteria for this, especially since the procedure is it ends up being pretty, pretty gnarly. So um, they talk about in this... Only data from the flume are presented here. So uh, they're all paddling a 510 shortboard by 18 wide, two and a quarter inch. So that is not a groveler. That's a that's a pretty, you know, smallish, narrowish, thinnish surfboard. Um, so it's very much what I would call shortboard technique uh, that surfers should be using uh, for their efficiency and their their power strokes. Um, then previous studies, they used different board sizes. So that was, you know, a possible difference in, in maximum velocities that they were reaching. So that was something that they fixed in this uh, study, which was great. Now here's the test. They're going to start out at 0.6 meters per second and increase by 0.1 meters per second every minute until the surfer was no longer able to keep up with the flow of water. So what that means is, is I did the, I did the math on this one. If they start out at 0.6 meters per second in one minute, they start to change it to 0.7 and then another minute goes by 0.8 and then 0.9 in five minutes. They've only gone up from 0.6 to one meter per second to get to two meters per second or 1.6, which is kind of like what they said was their uh, going to be their sprint or sprint definition that they've been paddling for 10 minutes already. Paddling for 10 minutes is a long time. And at the stroke rates at which they were battling at, I would assume that many of these guys were getting gassed by then. Uh, and some of the, the data that supports the, the oxygen consumption supports that, um, that assumption. This is what they consider a sprint. Now, nobody's really paddling for 10 minutes, uh, building up for 10 minutes and then turning and going for a wave. It happens every once in a while, but, but these, again, this is where I'm like, okay, these are, are they, technically, could they be considered sprint? Yeah, maybe at the speeds at which they're going because they based it off of those other studies. I understand how they link that. Based on what I've seen anecdotally with my clients, even 1.6 meters per second isn't a sprint. Um, closer to two or above is more of a sprint burst. Now, I only make them go at most 10 meters over that 
time period or less because in the ocean that's technically how long we sprint for generally um, so that's where in terms of a test for sprinting uh, we could probably redo this test or ask them to redo it and try to do it over a short period of time there are other problems they're not going to be able to measure oxygen consumption um, with that uh, and it's going to be such a short amount of data that all of the other data they're trying to capture is going to be more difficult because you're not you're going to have too much variability um, and not enough detail but maybe as technology gets better we'll have more precise instruments that we can maybe do that at any rate, um, the, again, this section is just talking about the the, the past um, the past studies and their limitations and how they've changed it and now kind of setting it up. Okay, we've also they're also outlining that they are going to measure oxygen consumption VO two um, and how they're going to do that. They're also uh, they're using the the EMGs. They explain the EMGs here and where they're placing them on the body. Um, this is the limitations exist for measuring the activation of muscles on the ventral surface of the athlete, which is, you know, the, the underside, you know, the serratus anterior and the pectoralis major are going to be underwater and they're going to be interacting with the board. So um, really hard to put sensors in that area. And then they cover everything else. And then they, um, they're also going to be measuring pitch and roll and yaw using different EMGs, uh, IMUs. So, uh, then they go into kind of the analysis. How did they determine the beginning and the end of the stroke? This one, I had to actually reach out to them and ask them because it, it didn't make too much sense when I read this. Uh, but it's in, in essence, they did not associate the definition of the beginning or the end of the stroke with a visual reference. They used the data and the accelerometer data specifically, uh, and the consistency of at each of the different water velocities to determine, okay, this is the this is technically the beginning of the stroke for this person versus this other person. Um, whereas I would optically look at the beginning of the stroke as okay, that's the beginning of the stroke because that's how I define is more opti uh, optically when the hand enters, and I structure the stroke into phases, the the four phases of the underwater arm stroke, for example, and then there's the arm recovery. So. That's where you know we might, in terms of definitions, be a little bit different, or at least in my mindset, be a little bit different than what they're they're explaining here. But they are actually taking a much more academic and and I would say uh, academically accurate uh, definition of the beginning and end of the stroke. So we're gonna have a little bit uh, of there, and then they and then based off that, they're actually also measuring as a as a result, they're measuring stroke cadence, which I call stroke rate. Um, and stroke duration in terms of how long you're in the stroke for, so seconds per stroke. Um, these are all um, statistics that I take in my level one and level two courses as well. Of course, they're using much more robust instruments than I do and are um, a little bit more structured in, in terms of what counts and what doesn't count, as they should, as they should. So uh, let's see on this next page. Am I jumping ahead here? Yeah, I'm jumping it. Nope, nope. I'm on the next page here. Okay, so um, this is where they define um, what is endurance paddling versus sprint paddling. So they're calling their efficiency endurance paddling. Um, so they're saying that uh, 
about one meter per second is more the endurance paddling. And then the sprint is 1.6 meters per second and higher. So because each participant uh, just went until they died and they couldn't go anymore. Um, it, there's a little bit at the top end. There, there are definitely there. There were two participants that that couldn't make it past 1.4 meters per second, and so they used 1.4 meters per second as the sprint for those two uh, in the data. So that they just kind of outlined that. But this is the kind of the first of the results that we see here. Now I'm going to explain some of these these pictures, and then uh, later on in the study they they explain the results. But this first one is oxygen consumption as a function of water velocity um, while paddling. So water velocity is on the x-axis, and uh, VO2 max is on the y-axis or oxygen consumption. And you can see it's a very linear curve, in essence. Um, there are a few anomalies here at the upper ranges, um, but it's fairly linear uh, as water velocity goes up, or in other words, as you paddle faster, you're using more oxygen consumption. It seems like a, a duh kind of answer, but this is the evidence behind it. And they're able to calculate it quite accurately with their oxygen consumption uh, instruments. So this isn't really something that we're like, oh, okay, that's, that's shockingly new information to us. Um, as you paddle faster, and especially if you're at about 15 minutes of paddling, your oxygen consumption is going to go up. Um, but when we look over here, there's some really interesting results uh, over here. So in figure three, we've got surfboard and paddling mechanics as a function of water velocity. And these are all different paddling mechanics. So this is what really interests me. So the first one is peak yaw acceleration. Remember what yaw is? Yaw is when the nose of the board goes left and your feet go right. Or the nose and the nose or the nose of the board goes right and your feet go left. So you're kind of like snaking through the water. Yaw in a previous study they showed is significantly correlated to efficiency, meaning the more yawing you do, the more oxygen consumption you use. Because their their definition of efficiency is oxygen consumption, which is a very accurate uh, use of energy, right? Energy efficiency. So the higher the yaw amount, the more oxygens being used and that's that that was first a kind of a side result of a previous study that they did on the surfboard foil amount uh, and the uh, linking that with oxygen consumption here they they have further supportive evidence that as the yaw motion goes up and this is more of an exponential curve so it's kind of starts out isn't less linear linear would be a much faster slope in the beginning at the lower water velocity so at the lower wa water velocities meaning you're, you're paddling slower you generally have less yaw but as soon as you start to increase your speed uh, from about you know 1.25 meters per second and up all of a sudden the yawing increases significantly again there are a few anomalies it looks like it's the same kind of participant there at about 1.75 meters per second but generally it goes up exponentially from about 1.25 up it starts to really increase at that curve so 
there's a little bit of a uh, the slower velocity. There's less yawing, and then right around 1.25 meters per second, 1.3, it starts to become very much more linear in that second half of the curve, which is what an exponential curve is, and it really shoots up. So the slope of the curve at that point really goes up. So as as you go faster, or as these participants went faster, t- this is the translation of what we're we're learning here. As they go faster, the yawing goes up, meaning inefficiency goes up so they've 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 have a little bit of evidence showing that yawing could be used as a metric to measure inefficiency on in paddling what this is supporting is that yeah that's true but only if the speed is about 1.3 meters per second or more because you know before that it's like very little yawing there's very little difference in the yawing it doesn't increase that significantly but once it hits that 1.3 1.4 meters per second boy oh boy does the faster you go the more you end up yawing right um that accelerometer also measured roll amounts and so we're going to talk about roll because yaw and roll yaw is the lateral movement left right roll is uh, more uh, vertical movement of the rail, right? You're rolling, but you're staying straight along a line. Um, so that I think is a very interesting kind of sidebar result of what we found here. Uh, here is the roll range of motion. This one's much more linear. And what they showed here, which uh, is interesting to me, is that there is more roll as your velocity increases, but it's a pretty slow increase, a slow slope of the curve. Um, it's not a drastic slope of the curve. It's a pretty mellow slope of the curve, uh, but it is linear in nature. How as you go faster, the more roll you put in your stroke. Now, what's interesting about this is that I found slightly different results for sprint. When you absolutely sprint from kind of a dead stop, I haven't measured the roll, but I've just observed it. And I've observed that the roll actually flattens out a little bit. Uh, The roll changes, actually. So in my courses, you learn that your efficiency stroke, you're rolling more from your hips. And it's it's more of a full body roll from rail to rail. And as you go up in volume and length, that roll decreases regardless of the speed in which you're going because you have more board to roll. For shortboard in a sprint, normally you're kicking. And when you kick, you fix your lower trunk so that it's harder to roll. Your lower trunk doesn't roll as much. So where does the roll come from? It's got to come from your shoulders. Because when you're trying to get a high stroke rate, which is what sprinting really is, we're trying to get more strokes per minute, you and you can't move your hips from side to side because it takes too long you got to roll your shoulders so it'd be interesting to put the accelerometer on the nose of the board and structure a study around my definition of the sprint which is short bursts and see if this still um this result stays the same or if it flattens meaning the roll range kind of stays the same from a certain speed up. That's what my hypothesis would be. So that's really interesting though. Now they talk about how this, you know, this makes sense to me. This results makes sense to me, especially in the way they structured the study, how when they're at, when they're at uh, two meters per second, they've already been paddling for 15 minutes 
well, hey, if I've been paddling for 15 minutes, I'd still roll too. And I would still be using my efficiency stroke most of the time. I wouldn't be using my strokes, uh, my sprint stroke at that point unless uh, there is a point at which maybe around 1.8 meters per second, I might switch into fourth gear, but I would try to stay at third gear, which is my efficiency gear, but my fast efficiency gear for as long as I can until uh, the very end. Uh, and then finally, the stroke time or duration of each stroke goes down as your the vo water velocity goes up. So this is kind of like, okay, so how long are you in the stroke for? This makes sense because your stroke rate typically goes up, therefore the stroke duration goes down. Um, but we will find that some of the data they they produced and published in this doesn't make a ton of sense to me when we throw up some of the, actually, let's do it right now. Then when we throw up some of these, uh, these amounts, I'm going to pull this up. I, uh, I was just trying to kind of figure this out. Okay. So at 0.6 meters per second, uh, the equivalent of about 1.34 miles per hour, their stroke rate, uh, in cycles per minute, they're looking here at, uh, let's, let's go, you know, this one's an anomaly. So let's go to 0.7 miles per hour. So 0 0.7, 0 0.7 miles per hour. Um, their stroke rate seconds per cycle looks to be a little under two. So uh, let's start with 35 strokes per minute. So that's 1.7. Uh, oops, going the wrong way. So 30 strokes per minute um, stroke rate gives you about a two second per cycle. Um, so that's a little bit, maybe maybe 32, there we go, or 31 strokes per minute. Gives you 1.9 seconds per cycle, per stroke, 1.9 seconds per stroke. And that's kind of what we're looking at here in figure three. When we're looking at stroke time, seconds per stroke uh, versus the water velocity. So going really slowly, uh, you're not taking a lot of strokes, but 31 strokes per minute it's still a pretty high stroke rate in my mind. You know, 1.9 seconds per stroke, that's okay. That's that's around, I would say, first gear. I mean, pretty slow. Actually, you know, I should take, I take that back. 31 strokes per minute is pretty good stroke rate. Now, going 0.7 meters per second, doing 31 strokes per minute, gives you a distance per stroke of 1.35 meters per stroke. So, each of these 31 strokes per minute is taking that surfer about 1.35 meters for every stroke. So speed is a function of distance per stroke times stroke rate, right? So you've got, or distance per stroke times this stroke rate. Meters per cycle times cycles per second gives you meters per second. Um, so I, what I put in this little calculator is as we change the speed, we're gonna change the stroke rate to align with the, the data that we're seeing here and we're gonna just kind of assess how that goes. So I'm just gonna move up to say about one, about one meter per second. We'll just jump to that. One meters per second on this graph looks like it's probably about 1.8 seconds per stroke. Um, so let's go up to 32, 33. Okay, so about 33, 34. Uh, about 34 strokes per minute. So that's the cadence or stroke rate. That's gonna now uh, change the distance per stroke to 1.76 meters per stroke. So that's a pretty good, 
uh, length. Now we're going to jump up to about 1.5 meters per second. Actually, let's jump up to 1.6 meters per second because that's when they were saying that's the sprint. So at 1.6 meters per second, they're already been paddling for 10 minutes when they hit this point. And their stroke rate drops to just under 1.5 seconds per stroke. So let's try to get that down. There's 1.5 seconds per stroke dead on. So that's 40 strokes a minute of a stroke uh, cycle. And their distance per stroke is 2.4 meters per cycle. Um, so their distance per stroke is going up. Their stroke rate is slowly going up. But this is supposed to be the sprint. A sprint, in my eyes, has a stroke rate that is between 0.9 and 1 second per stroke, not 1.5 seconds per stroke. So while, yes, they're claiming this is a sprint by definition off of the other studies, I totally get that why they did that. Here's where I would say, you know what, that's not really a sprint. And even at 2 seconds per stroke rate, they're looking at, uh, or sorry, two meters per second. They're looking at about one point, just over one, maybe 1.1, 1 .1, you know, 54 strokes per minute and a distance per stroke of 2.22 meters per stroke. A stroke rate of 1.11 seconds per stroke. That's a little bit closer to what I would claim as a sprint or a stroke burst. Um, but it's still not fast enough to technically be effective at catching a wave with ease. Um, so I teach a three-stroke burst. You need to get three strokes in within a second and a half, which means the two, the three individual strokes need to overlap, and each stroke is between 0.9 and one second in total duration. So you might look at that and be like, wait, wait a minute. If they're one second per stroke and there's three strokes, then it takes three seconds to complete three strokes. However, what I'm saying is that the right and the left have to overlap throughout the stroke. So each stroke technically is 0.9 to 1 second in duration, but the left and right overlap on, on two of the three strokes. So you end up with a second and a half in total duration to get three strokes in. Anyway, I digress. That's beside the point. But what this is saying is that I'm not entirely sure that 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 calling this a sprint is really a sprint just looking at the stroke rate and cadence when they're at this this top speed it's not quite a sprint in my eyes but again interesting information nonetheless so let's move on now this is the page that i really really got interested in this was an example of one of the participants and their stroke profile so this is not an average of the group this is one individual and what we're seeing on the x-axis is the percent of the stroke cycle. So at 0% of the stroke cycle, so the beginning of the stroke, which again, they defined uh, based off the accelerometer data, but also they defined it as the, the, the hand is at the most anterior or cranial position, which is kind of out and in front of them and, and over their head. Um, and then 100% would be kind of back to that point, right? So it's pretty close to how I would define the stroke cycle. There's a little bit of discrepancy, but if but we're in the ballpark here that, that the hand's going to enter around 0 to 10%. Um, it hits the, the propulsive phase around 40 to 70%, and then the recovery phase from 70 to 100. So if you imagine the arm going in from 0 to 10 um, setting up for the stroke, propelling from um, from 
35 to 70%. So that's, you know, whatever you want to call per propulsion phase um, at that point. And then it starts to be removed around that 75% mark and, and, and is above water from about 75 to 100. So this is the latissimus dorsi um, at different speeds. So you can see the different speeds in the legend here. And then the solid black line is that, that 1.8 meters per second. So we've got 1.8 and 1.6 what they're defining the sprint. And you can see that the latissimus dorsi fires earlier, the faster they go from really the difference between one, the 1.6, 1.3 and 1.1, the latissimus dorsi is firing at timing wise about the same time. But once they get up to 1.8, it fires earlier, which is interesting in my mind. Again, at 1.8 meters per second, they've been paddling for 12 minutes. So could it be that they're anticipating they need to engage sooner? Because, you know, 1.3 to 1.6, the timing is about the same, <laughs> which is really interesting, right? Um, so this is a, a good question to ask is the results of this, um, that it fires a little bit earlier, meaning maybe they're rushing the stroke. Right. And, and again, we don't see the visual evidence of what's happening, but could they be rushing the stroke? But the other thing we notice is that the magnitude changes. You can see here at 1.1, it's the latissimus dorsi is barely being activated. And then at 1.3 meters per second, the peak is much higher, 1.6 meters per second. So the, the difference from 1.1 to 1.3 is pretty, pretty large. The difference from 1.3 to 1.6 is not all that large in terms of activation. And then the, the, the change from 1.6 to 1.8 is quite large and the timing shifts. So again, you know, could that, could that have been a limitation from 1.6 to 1.8, the timing, but the magnitude, it makes sense. And then it's interesting that from 1.3 to 1.6, the magnitude isn't all that big of a difference. Um, so the latissimus dorsi, which is one of the major muscle groups that we use for the propulsive phase of the stroke, um, is being fired. And, and coincidentally, maybe not coincidentally, when I put hand sensors on surfers in the level two course, the shape of the curve for, for the force is about the same as what you would see here uh, for an effective stroke, whether it's a efficiency stroke or a sprint stroke. So the sprint stroke, it would be a quicker increase into this peak. And for efficiency stroke, you have this kind of this slow um, setup and then an increase at the back of the stroke, right? So it's interesting that that, that does match pretty well with the force curves that I, that I cover and that I teach. Here's some other information, and this is we're going to get to some of the results in here in a bit. But the mid deltoid and the posterior deltoid, these are our outer shoulders, right? So you would think that mostly in the recovery of the stroke, they're being engaged. And sure enough, the mid deltoid in the recovery phase from 80% to 100. So that's that recovery above the water. You're coming up and over the water. You're going to be using that posterior and mid deltoid to bring it forward. But what's I think extra interesting about this is that you can see the, sh the, 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 the mid and the posterior deltoid are being used more so in that high speed area during the propulsive phase of the stroke here and here at about this 50 to 60% mark of the stroke cycle, almost aligns with the latissimus dorsi. But when you look at the 1.1, 1.3, and 1.6, 
that it doesn't really show. The 1.6, it, it engages a little bit there and a little bit here. It really engages when it hits that 1.8. So this was actually a really surprising result that the mid deltoid and the posterior deltoid have a pretty impactful role in the propulsive phase of the stroke. One that we wouldn't think. We would think that it would, and you can see the magnitude is much higher on the recovery part of the strokes. Um, what's What I don't like seeing is it being engaged in the first part of stroke here. This is how you burn out your shoulders, guys, right here. So when I look at this first part of the stroke, the zero to 20%, the mid and posterior deltoid, again, this could be a definition change, but if this, if zero is when the hand enters and kind of 20 is when it starts to set up the propulsive phase, we're trying not to use too much of our rotator cuff or deltoids in that first 20% of the stroke. So this would be a technique thing that I would, I would want to work with all 12 of these surfers and be like, guys, you're burning your shoulders out. And especially now that we've learned that the deltoid is engaged in the propulsive phase as well as the recovery. So the recovery, we kind of made sense. It, it would make sense to bring it forward. But the mid, like the middle of the stroke, it's being engaged quite a bit at the higher speeds, at the sprint speeds. Not so much during the, the what they call endurance paddling. You can see here in the 1.1 and 1.3 meters per second, they're not being used nearly at all. But the 1.6 and especially the 1.8 meters per second speeds they are engaging it quite significantly at the high, high speeds, right? And if, if I extend this beyond my uh, uh, definition of the sprint, which would be probably in 2.2, 2.5 meters per second we're talking about here, it should engage even more according to this evidence. So that would be something that we would want to test, right? But at any rate, the deltoid's being used a lot. And if you're using it where you're not supposed to be using in the front part of your stroke, you're going to burn it out. And therefore, your sprints aren't going to be as effective uh, at moving you forward. Very interesting results here. This is where, this is the, the, the upper trap and the mid trap, uh, trapezius, upper trapezius and mid trapezius. And, and the mid trapezius is, is kind of down by, that, uh, by the scapula in the middle, if you recall from the picture that I showed earlier. Um, and the upper trap is what we would experience up here, that little bump at the top of our shoulders. So again, you see, you know, the upper trap is being engaged in the recovery part of the stroke, uh, in, especially in the sprint, but also in the regular strokes. And in the regular strokes, it's being engaged a lot more in the first 20%, but less so in the sprint. That's interesting to me again, where the upper trap is being engaged. But the mid trap is kind of where I instigated this whole podcast from when my client said it's right around my mid trap of like the way that he described the, the the soreness is around the mid trap and he said you know my sprint i'm i'm really i feel it here a lot more look at this it's being engaged during the propulsive phase of the stroke right but only on the sprint not on the other one so because we were doing level two and we were doing a lot of load load up he was using a lot more of the mid trap not only in the recovery, which it is being used, as you can see here with all the different strokes, just a higher magnitude with the sprint, you can see that it's being engaged quite a bit in the mid part of the stroke. Once again, if you're engaging that mid trap and upper trap a lot in that first 20% of the stroke, there's a technique issue there. You shouldn't be engaging it this much. And so you're burning it out. But this, is, uh, this was interesting. So I sent this to him. I said, hey, dude, 
you should be you should be sore there because you'd never used that before. And so we did a lot of sprint stuff, and that's that's this is supporting evidence. So that was that was pretty cool. I like that. So moving on to the next page, uh, we get into what they are describing as the results. But we we hit um, figure five. And figure five is, you know, the first one is the, the normalized muscle activation just is saying as, as the speed, as the water velocity increases, so is the activation of each one of these areas, which we saw. Um, but the change in muscle activation between the endurance paddling and the sprint paddling was mostly seen. The biggest change is in the lat and the mid deltoid. The least was in the upper trap. Uh, and the posterior deltoid. So this was this was interesting. And then the change between the upper tra uh, trapezoid and the latissimus was quite significant, the change of the change. So the, there was a significant difference between that upper trap and the lat in terms of the endurance uh, versus the sprint. And I think this figure six shows a pretty, pretty interesting view of it as well. Um, so the difference between the endurance and the sprint, all the muscles kind of deactivated and activated sooner when sprinting. So you can see here, let's start with the mid trap. You see on the sprint, it deactivates earlier than the endurance and then it activates sooner than the endurance. And then the peak happens about the same between the two. The upper trap, it disengages earlier and engages earlier but it engages the peak a little bit earlier on the sprint than on the endurance. The mid, de mid de deltoid, again, it engages earlier on the sprint and or it disengages earlier on the sprint and engages earlier, much earlier than, than we expected uh, and, and then the endurance and the peak happens earlier. So that was surprising right there. And then the, the posterior deltoid, it, uh, it releases sooner and engages slightly sooner than the endurance but the uh sprint peak happens later than the endurance and then finally the latissimus dorsi uh, engages earlier on the sprint than on the endurance and the peak happens earlier so that was one this result right here with the latissimus dorsi makes me believe that that was more of a function of fatigue and rushing the stroke than um, what happens in an actual sprint but maybe not maybe not Maybe not, but it'd be interesting to kind of measure the neurological changes between an endurance and sprint. So what's happening in the brain when you get all excited to catch a wave? Do you start too early in your stroke? And that's a common problem. That's why I'm bringing it up here. Common problem I see with the effectiveness of a stroke and, and, and a lot of surfers slipping is that they engage the stroke too soon. Um, a couple other of the results. So we've kind of gone through most of the results, but a couple other of the results is that the uh, pitch angle, so meaning the nose to tail pitch was unaffected between going slow and going fast. That was pretty cool. Uh, we already saw that the roll increases and and they talk about having how the roll might increase um the the effectiveness of what's called slipping uh in the stroke um but um, i define slipping a little bit different they're they're saying that you know the roll it's further down here uh where is it it's right here they're saying that the the, the roll would uh provide greater resistance uh 
and potentially reduce the slipping uh, based on the arm being more submerged. Now, there's a little bit to that. The deeper you go in your stroke, the more dense the water is and the less you are um, likely to slip. Uh, but I've seen uh, people slip with part of their arm in the water to f their full arm in the water. So there's more to that than just the roll. Um, and I think I, I, I explained earlier how the roll might be different for a true sprint versus the sprint that they're defining here. So um, let's see here uh, in more of the discussion, going back to the discussion, if there's any other... Um, kind of main points. Oh yeah, the primary purpose of the study is to characterize muscle activation. I think they nailed that. Um, they were talking about how the the some of the, the areas, the timing of the engagement was earlier than they expected. They talked about how it, it, it related to swimming and how in swimming, um, they had kind of a later timing with similar results, but the timing was different and the, and as well as some of the duration was different. So that was interesting. Um, I would want to see are the swim studies that they're, they're looking at, are they Olympic caliber swimmers or are they recreational swimmers? Because that could make a difference from the studies that I've seen in terms of the timing and the duration of the strokes. Um, so that might be the difference there. So, um, again, they keep going through kind of the differences in what's engaged in the swimming studies. So it could be based off of the subjects that were being used as well. Um, and then finally, the, the different profiles. So um, the timing and magnitude of activation were altered as the velocity, the water velocity increased. Um, that was stuff that we just saw. Um, nothing, nothing really major there, just some really interesting things. And then they finally, these are all the things that we've already talked about, the results of what we talked about, but I love this. Uh, these data suggest that surfers might benefit from a focus on lower cadence with longer and more complete paddling strokes as swimmers were previously reported to improve their efficiency with a lower cadence. So this is my level one course. This is learning efficiency by reducing your stroke rate and making each stroke more effective, but also reducing drag. So this is fantastic to hear that that's kind of what they're, they're thinking about there. Um, and they're, they're on track. They're definitely on track there. Um, they're, they're also talking about here, the results, um, talking about the, the activation and during the propulsive phase of the stroke. What's really interesting is they're saying surfers are interested in improving sprint paddling velocity should therefore focus on strength of muscles primarily involved in propulsion, which is the pectoralis major, the latissimus dorsi, the triceps, and the deltoid. So more so the deltoid. I think this result so shows that you should engage more of the deltoid than we previously thought. But uh, all these other ones we kind of knew about. The deltoid we're probably going to incorporate a little bit more into our strength training, but they're saying that if you want to improve sprint paddling velocity, it should just be focused on strength, which I don't agree with because there are some more technique driven areas that you need to get to first. But this is something that, that really kind of works um, it, on top of technique. So once you get the technique down, the faster you move through water, generally, the more force you need to push, but up to the point of slipping. So that's a technique-driven thing, not a strength thing. If you just focus on strength, you're going to end up slipping like crazy. So that's where there needs to be 
a crossover between fitness and technique in that sense. Here they talk about the yaw acceleration and how um, it's it's been previously shown to be related to oxygen use. And this is further evidence that it might be good to link those two. It talks about VO2 uh, and oxygen consumption being measured here. Um, they talk about the differences between being in the flume versus being in open water. Um, which is really, really interesting. The, the, the differences in behavior uh, in paddling in the flume versus against a current and, and kind of moving around in the water. Yeah, there's differences there. The roll range of motion is related to, um, th this is that slip portion related, the, the, the roll is related to, to a deeper arm stroke and related to higher velocities of the water. Um, they say here, however, roll range of motion seems to be related to surfboard volume, and and um, these were these were uh, these surfboards that was used in this study were were smaller than the ones that were used in the previous study where roll was linked. Um, I agree, roll range of motion is related to surfboard volume and length um, and design, uh, but also with speed. So that's something that I teach. And then they talk about different limitations, um, and I think we've already kind of talked about the, the limitations. Um, there could be a different uh, additional forces that you're dealing with in the ocean with currents moving side to side or chop versus in the flume. Um, fatigue could be a limitation, you know, uh, without giving rest between trials fatigue by the end of their test, um, and lower velocity than their true maximum velocity. That's certainly something they outlined. And so they, they address that. Um, and then obviously the other muscles, they couldn't get the pectoralis major or the serratus anterior, uh, and they didn't do the, the tricep, which was interesting to me. Um, at any rate, I think they did an amazing job. Um, the, the robustness and, and thoroughness of this report of this study was done quite well. And the results do show us some things that we can work on, uh, primarily focus a little bit more on the deltoid. This is showing me, you know, when I see the deltoid being engaged and the trap being engaged in the first part of the stroke, that is telling me that they are pushing down in the stroke in the first part. So these are, you know, they're engaging muscle groups when they don't need to, and especially in the efficiency stroke, but also in, uh, but also in the sprint. And so the latissimus dorsi shape looks good. I like that. And I like the arm recovery um, for the traps uh, and the deltoids being engaged there. Uh, but, but this is, I could look at these 12 servers and, and be like, okay, just looked on, look at it. This one, this is one surfer. Just looking at this one surfer's uh, profile, uh, they're pushing down in the first part of the stroke, which is inefficient. It's just sending them up, not forward. So there are definitely some things that uh, this surfer could improve on. And they were getting up to 1.8 meters per second. So they were moving pretty quickly and uh, effectively. Uh, but but this is really, really helpful information. Hopefully this podcast has been helpful to you that you know at least you've consumed and absorbed 20% of what I've said. And maybe that can help you out in the water to really focus on cadence, stretching out your stroke, not pushing down in your stroke, making sure you're building from front to back uh, through your stroke. And that if you are doing exercises in fitness for paddling, make sure you're, again, you're focusing on the latissimus dorsi, the pectoralis major, the, the tricep and the deltoid. Okay. Not so much the mid trap. That's not really doing much 
um, this mid the mid trap sorry the mid trap uh, is doing uh, is being engaged during the propulsive section during the sprint but the upper trap is not so the mid trap the deltoids and the latissimus dorsi this is showing that are being engaged in that propulsive section to get a stronger um, use of your body of your muscle groups now when you learn good technique you realize that when you sprint you really only need to use about 60 to 80 percent of the force that you have um, existing you don't need to go all out when you use good technique and you're set up properly to catch a wave um, but that's for a whole nother discussion that's in level two so i hope you guys enjoyed this and I hope you guys got something from it. If you have any questions, reach out. And until I speak to you again, I'll see you in the water.